for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. I am really excited today to be joined once again by my daughter, Catherine Bailey, PhD, who uh, is going to be talking about the science of milking today. Hey, Catherine, welcome back. Hello, it's good to be back. No, thanks for having me on again. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the research that I did in grad school. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of the cool, um, also some of the um, reading of the research, which I did. I'm so so careful now about saying I do research because I'm like, well, no, I'm most of the time I'm reading research that somebody else did because um, you have done real research yourself. So let's dive right in to something that I know is a big problem for a lot of people who milk goats, and that is that it can taste goaty. And I don't know if you remember this because we moved out here when you were nine and then you started milking about a year later. So I don't remember exactly when I figured this out, but when we got started in 2002, I had absolutely zero clue that you were supposed to clean the udder or put a few squirts of milk into a separate container initially. And we did not know why we would get sometimes perfectly delicious milk and sometimes milk that tasted like you were licking a buck. Like it was just so gross. Like it would make me gag. If I put it in a cup of coffee, I'd wind up dumping my coffee down the drain. And, um, and then I, learned, oh, you're supposed to clean the udder and <laughs> cleaning the udder definitely helped a lot. And then I learned about doing first squirts to, because the tip of that teat has um, some bacteria in it because it's been sitting there for the last 12 hours since the last time you milked. And so it was really fun then when you went to grad school and then one day told me that you were working on research to try and help dairies in Kenya have milk that didn't taste gross. <laughs> so I thought that was a wonderful coincidence. And um, so can you tell us a little bit about like how your lab got contacted and basically the research that you did with them on their gross milk? <laughs> yeah, of course. So it's kind of funny because yeah, if you listen to the episode where I talked about my education, my PhD is technically in bioanalytical chemistry. It's not in uh, milk or agriculture or anything. So it probably seems kind of random, but he was contacted, uh, my boss, my advisor, he was contacted by a, the Kenyan government, I believe. I don't know what tier of government, but in case you didn't know, Kenya is actually one of the top producers of milk in all of Africa. And I believe he said there was like hundreds of thousands of farmers that in Kenya that produce milk and it can be any like cows, goats, camels, and sheep. And uh, what we learned is that instead of like in the United States where our farms, you know, come from select farms that have hundreds, if not thousands of dairy animals in Africa, they come from lots of very small farms. The average farm, I believe, had like 10 animals, whether it was goats or cows. And what would happen is that they would pool all their milk together. And what they found is that sometimes, you know, the farmers would come with very clean milk and other farmers would come with very dirty milk. And the issue is that when you pool them all together, then all of your milk is bad. And they wanted us to come up with a point of need test that could detect bacteria 
very quickly. Basically, a farmer would bring in milk, they would add a little bit of milk to a test, and it would turn colors, indicating that there was excessive bacteria contamination, because that is basically what it breaks down to about whether your whether your milk tastes bad or not, is that pretty much comes down to bacteria. Uh, a lot of my research in general, actually, in graduate school is not in diagnostics, but actually in food safety. So, you know, there was a couple years ago, there was that massive E. coli outbreak from spinach. And that turned out to be due to fecal contamination. I could point to so many different food, break, food illness outbreaks that come down to fecal contamination. And I know we probably didn't catch on to this early on, but I know towards the end of before I moved from the farm, if any sort of fecal matter from the goats dropped into the milk bucket, we would just dump that milk because that is just introducing literally millions of bacteria into your milk. And that probably has a lot to do with it. I will probably discuss this a little bit more. Hair has bacteria on it. Skin has bacteria on it. And uh, yeah, if you can, and so the idea was that if we, uh, in Kenya, if they could catch these, you know, dirtier milks before they contaminate everything, they'd have to throw out a lot less milk. So that is the first step is, is to figure out like, oh, you've got contaminated milk, don't use it. And one yeah. of the things I want to say too, before people freak out and think, oh my gosh, there's bacteria in my milk. Most of this bacteria is completely harmless. Now, obviously, if it came from feces, then you could be talking E. coli and all kinds of stuff here that could make you sick. But like a lot of the bacteria that is on a goat's skin or their hair or something is just, it is a bacteria that is not going to take up residence and cause illness in a human body. But bacteria apparently does not taste good. <laughs> no, especially when it comes from feces. I can... I'm super quick. I detected, I detect a lot of different kinds of bacteria. And I remember I was often given bacteria blind to detect it. So that would be given bacteria samples. And this was when I was detecting antimicrobial resistant bacteria and someone from another lab would give me blinded bacteria samples. And I needed to detect the antimicrobial resistant bacteria. And these had already, these are bacteria that had been isolated. And one of the bacteria samples after it grew up to, you know, a high concentration so I could detect it, I, you know, most bacteria to me kind of smells like dog food, honestly, but this bacteria <laughs> smelled like feces. And I was just like, Oh no. I was like, why does this bacteria smell horrible? Turned out it had been isolated from a human colon. So. <laughs> oh, okay. That <laughs> would make sense. fun facts there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the second part of your, of that research that you were doing that was so fascinating is that they wanted to figure out if they could separate out the bacteria from the milk. And what I thought was interesting about that, because I remember I asked you, I'm like, well, don't they pasteurize it? And you said, well, yeah, but dead bacteria tastes bad too. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you're thinking, oh, well, why don't you just pasteurize it? It's because you're not removing the bacteria when you pasteurize it. You're just killing it. And apparently dead bacteria doesn't taste any better than live bacteria. <laughs> Yeah. And it's funny because I remember talking, I've taught, you know, growing up, I would tell people, it's like, oh yeah, I grew up on a goat farm. And they'd be like, oh, goat milk tastes horrible. How could you drink that? It's like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, I tried goat milk once and it, it, it tasted like goat. I was just like, well, clearly you got your milk from someone who didn't clean their goats very well. And, you know, and I, those were, and I think they even mentioned, I was like, this is store-bought milk. Like you think it wouldn't taste so bad because it's pasteurized. Like pasteurization mm -hmm. doesn't help with the taste. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> I know so many people who 
before they bought goats, they thought, oh, I'm going to go to the store and buy some goat milk and see if I like it. And they said that they almost didn't buy goats because the goat milk at the store tastes so gross. Um, and that luckily then they, they met someone who has goats and they went to their farm and they tried their goat milk and it was delicious. It didn't taste anything like the stuff they had bought at the store. And then a vet actually told me that a lot of times people who work in, in very large dairies, um, don't clean the udder very well because their assumption is, well, the milk's going to be pasteurized. The udder doesn't really need to be cleaned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're just thinking about safety. They don't realize how it affects the taste. Yeah, absolutely. And going back to what you were saying, you know, uh, I kind of, it wasn't a main part of the research, the filtering out bacteria. That was actually more of a focus on the fact that uh, our limit of detection wasn't as low as we wanted it to be for detecting bacteria in milk. And so that was kind of a question like, hey, can we isolate the bacteria from the milk really quickly in order to detect it? And that's when I discovered that apparently this is kind of like an issue that's been, I mean, it's still an issue that you can't really separate bacteria from milk using a filter. You can't use a size exclusion filter because I learned that fat globules are the exact same size as bacteria, which is a bit of an issue. And it's kind of funny because I remember I was looking up research and most of the research about separating bacteria from milk are actually from the 80s and 90s. Like it's not something that people have been trying to tackle recently, but the best that they have so far is that, you know, I found like a couple patents on it, but there's a way of separating bacteria from milk where you do a centrifugation process. So the fat I think is heavier than the bacteria. So they're counting on basically separating the Mac, the, sorry, separating the fat using centrifugation and then running the rest of the milk through a filter that, captures a lot of the bacteria, not all of it. They make that very clear in this patent. It's like, it does not remove all the bacteria. It just, it just lowers the bacteria concentration and then they remix it back in with the fat. But that's yeah. the closest we've gotten to separating bacteria from milk. And the issue is because fat and bacteria are at the same size. So probably the only way, you know, anybody who invents this is going to be a very rich person, I think. But if <laughs> someone can find a filter that separates bacteria from from the fat of milk, probably based on surface properties is the only way I can think about it, because the surface of a bacteria is very different from the surface of fat. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And one of the things that I, some listeners may have heard before is that if you chill your milk quickly, it will taste better. And that's true to a point um, because bacteria is going to grow much slower when it's refrigerated. So if, if you can get it chilled, you know, like immediately as soon as you bring it into the house, rather than like letting it sit on the counter for three or four hours before chilling it, um, the bacteria is going to be multiplying crazy fast before it goes into the fridge. But I remember even, you know, before we fully understood the importance of getting the udder clean, um, and we're not talking crazy or we're not, we're not talking about putting bleach on your goat's udder or anything like that. Like we just would clean it with a wet washcloth. Um, but before we knew that, that, um, that I did notice, I really did not like our milk beyond about three days. After about three days, it was going to the pigs or the chickens or somebody because I didn't think it tasted that good anymore. And it's because the bacteria that was in there was continuing to grow. So even though it wasn't enough in the beginning to, to be so gross that it 
caused me to give it to the pigs right away, that after about three days, the bacteria had gotten high enough where I was like, yeah, this isn't that great anymore. And so I wasn't really that interested anymore. (laughs) Yeah, because something that's really important to point out about milk is that is the perfect breeding ground for bacteria because it is full of lactose and bacteria love and bacteria love sugar. I mean, yeah, that's oh. so yeah. So what happens actually is that bacteria eat the sugar and then they release acid. And so that contributes to bad taste as well. Oh, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what you mean. I've tasted that. <laughs> it does get get slightly acidic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's kind of funny cuz yeah, like I said, I researched this I went down that black hole when I was researching bacteria in milk, but apparently what happens is that, you know, when you first milk an animal, there's bacteria in there and they're going to feed off the lactose and they release acid. And then it gets to a certain pH where that first kind of bacteria dies. But apparently then another kind of bacteria can take over because then it's at the ideal pH. So bacteria, you know, they need to be at the right pH. They need to be at the right temperature. They need to have food. And so obviously if you keep it at room temperature, it's going to be at a better, it's bacteria going to replicate a lot faster. But like you said, when you put it in the fridge, you don't stop that replication. You don't even stop that replication when it goes into the freezer. Technically, (laughs) it Mm -hmm. just slows way, way down. Yeah. Wow. This is so fascinating. Is there anything else you want to say about the bacterial growth and how that affects taste and anything before we move on? Uh, No, that's about all I have. (laughs) Okay. The other thing I wanted to talk about, and this is funny because this is actually has to do with research I did, and I do mean legitimate research with cat. This was with cows um, about a year ago. Um, I was hired as a contractor to help with some milking research with um, milking Devons, which is a heritage breed of cow. And when I got the first test results back, I was in shock. I was like, there is no way that this is right. Because they, it showed that the butter fat of this, these two cows was less than 1%. And I contacted the person who had the cows and I'm like, what did you do? Like, I don't, like, this is impossible. There's no way that, because her calves were being raised by their moms. So it's like your calves would, would have died. If, if this milk was legitimately less than 1%, the calves would have died. They would not have survived. Um, And I talked to the lab that was doing the testing. And what we ultimately figured out was this other issue that we used to talk about all the time when you were on the farm about, um, we we complained about goats holding back their milk, um, but apparently cows may hold back their milk too. And, And I've always heard people talk about this, like the goats are doing it on purpose, the cows are doing it on purpose because they're, they're nursing a baby and they're trying to save their milk for the baby. Which sound kind of sound kind of makes sense, but as a former nursing mom myself, I'm thinking I couldn't hold back my milk, <laughs> you know. Like, I mean, there's plenty of stories of nursing moms who are like in a store and they hear a baby cry and their milk just starts to flow. Um, so th- that didn't a hundred percent make sense to me, but it really, really felt like the goats were holding back their milk, right? Then I also, I saw a study about goats that talked about how goats, um, when they are raising kids and the kids are nursing, that the kids nursing causes an oxytocin release, which is the hormone that is responsible for the milk ejection reflex. 
And when we milk them, regardless of how much they love us, they don't love us as much as they love their babies. And so we don't get that oxytocin release. Um, that's what the research said. I think what we found was that after a couple weeks of milking or maybe, a, you know, a little longer that we could um, get the goats to, we could finally get all the milk. Um, and we never had any issues with our milk test. At least I didn't think we did. Now I want to go back and do research on my goats. Um, and like, but actually somebody else did this already where they took milk samples from different sections of the milking, like from the very beginning of the milking and the middle of the milking and the end of the milking. And it is indeed, when you put all this together, goats and cows, um, and humans, like, we, with humans, I remember we talked about hind milk, meaning that like the highest butter fat milk is going to be at the back. Um, so the baby's going to nurse for a while before they get the really high fat milk. And that is the same apparently with, with cows and goats, um, at least from the research that I've read and the research that I was able to do last year with the Devon cows, um, like massaging the udder more and um, things like that to try and get the goat to let down. Do you have, do you remember this? <laughs> oh, I definitely remember this. So I remember I, it, all the research you're saying actually makes a lot of sense because I remember first fresheners being the worst and yeah. then the sooner after birth was definitely the worst. So basically older goats who were like months after they'd given birth, there was no issues with them holding back. But I definitely remember there was like, just, I just remember their udders being so hard and trying to massage them and be like, come on girl, come on, look at you. And there were some goats that would absolutely refuse to let up. And yeah, you, you would put them back in the pasture and the babies would go in. And then if you felt their udder after that nursing, it, it felt soft. Versus uh, every now and then massaging would work. There were definitely some goats where, yeah, if you massage it just the right way, you could even like, you could definitely feel the udder. Like it would like start to soften. Like they were definitely like letting it go so that you could, you could milk it. You could milk it. Yeah. And I think also too, it was funny. One time I remember we were doing a milk test and it was, I think it was right after you had left home and dad was helping. He was just learning to milk and it was milk test day and we had done our morning milking and Agnes gave me three pounds of milk in the morning, which I was ecstatic. I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Oh my goodness. We're looking at a six pound day. This is awesome. This is going to be like, you know, this is going to be like the second or third ever best milk test that we've we've had and then I got a migraine <laughs> and um and, and and the thing is too so about that milking is that I got half of that three pounds after I took the machine off of her she was oh. newly fresh this was like she was a month fresh when they have you know lots of milk and she was not letting down for the machine. And so I wound up having to get about half of that three pounds by hand after taking the machine off. And then I had a migraine in the evening and my husband who was still learning, um, tried to milk her and for the evening milking, he got like a pound and a half. So her 24 hour total was only four and a half pounds, which was devastating to me because like I knew if I could have been out there and milked her that I could have gotten more, but just simply because he was newer and maybe because she didn't know him as well either. 
-hmm. you know, she was even more tense and less likely to let down her milk for him. Now, I wonder if having the kids nearby hinders it at all as well. Like if they hear their, you know, and you know, you separate the kids overnight for milking and everything. If they hear their babies, you know, on the other side of the barn screaming, I wonder if that also keeps them from loading up. That's interesting because like with women, remember I mentioned like you could be in a store when you're lactating <laughs> yeah. and like you hear a baby cry and you're like, oh my goodness, no. Um, because you can feel the milk start to let down. Um, because one of the things that one lady was telling me with her cow, the way that she gets the high fat milk from her cow is by bringing in the calf and letting the calf start to nurse. Um, and then taking the calf away as soon as, you know, she's like, she milks until she's, she's like, I can't get another drop. So then she goes and gets the calf, brings the calf in. The calf starts sucking and you see at first the calf is just like sucking, sucking, sucking. And then you see it start to swallow. And as soon as she would see the calf swallowing, she's like, okay, I know the milk let down now. And she would take the calf away (laughs) and then start to milk some more and get the high fat milk. Okay. So it was, that was, it was really fascinating. I mean, like the whole reason we did that study is just because like we wanted to know what the components were in Devon milk, you know? And so we thought, oh, we're going to learn like, you know, what's the butter fat? What's the protein? Um, We also sent it to a special lab in, um, that was doing um, omega-3 and omega-6 and fatty acid research. It was a food scientist. Um, which was pretty, um, which was a lot more expensive than just your quick little dip thing. So it was super fascinating. And I figured that you would also find this all interesting too, since it just fit in so perfectly. It explains so much about our milking challenges years ago. Oh, it absolutely does. (laughs) No, that's, that's great to hear. While we're on the topic on science experiments and kind of going back to the bacteria content in milk, I can't help but to wonder if anybody has done an experiment regarding like the bacteria content in milk in different scenarios, you know, when you clean an udder, when you don't clean an udder between different goats, uh, between different species, even like, I'm very curious to see if anybody's done that study. And if they haven't, I'm really curious if any listeners that happen to have a connection in the agricultural science community would be interested in running that experiment and sending me the results. Cause I'm actually really curious to see about bacteria content in milk. And, you know, even like little things, like if you leave it out on the counter for like an extra hour, like, you know, what, how that's going to change the bacteria concentration. Oh yeah. That actually sounds really interesting. That's actually something that really anybody could do. Like you just take the samples at different times, number them and send them off to the lab. That's true. Yeah. I don't have any goats right now, so I can't do it, but. (laughs) Yes, that would be the caveat. Anyone with goats could do that. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I'd be very curious to see those results because yeah, I know. Yeah, especially, yeah, from day to day, I imagine it varies too. Because yeah, I imagine people have had this happen where sometimes you bring the goat onto the milking stand and you have no idea what they did in the pasture, but their rear end is just covered in feces. And yeah, that's the day where you need to spend like five minutes cleaning the udder as opposed to, you know, just a simple wash down. I'm curious about the bacteria content of that milk as well. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And that is actually when, like when that happens, that is when you go, okay, you're going to be last today. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I am. Yeah, I definitely would consciously do that. If I saw it, there was, there was a goat that had an extra dirty udder. Yeah. Yeah. You just put them aside and say, okay, you're going to be last because, uh, yeah, it's just going to be gross cleaning your udder. And, and I remember that it's funny how your sense of smell has such good memory because as you are talking about this, I can smell goat poop. <laughs> like, and it's been a long time since I've been in that situation, but it's just not fun to be in that situation because even like once you think the udder is clean and it looks clean after you milk that goat and you smell your hands, you still smell poop. Oh, absolutely. I definitely remember that. Or yeah, you think you got it all and then you see one tiny little piece that you miss fall into the bucket. Yeah. So absolutely. So that's why that goat goes to the very end because, you know, like your hands are going to be contaminated. The bucket is going to be contaminated. Everything is going to be contaminated with feces after you milk her. So she needs to be last. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Let's reiterate again that bacteria for the most part is good, but fecal bacteria are not. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So don't worry about the skin and the hair bacteria. Hair is going to fall into your bucket. You know, that's why you use a a filter to filter it out. Um, But yeah, I'm kind of excited now about the possibility of like doing some research and seeing how bacteria grows (laughs) um, in there. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. Hopefully people find this helpful so that because it, I know it was just so heartbreaking to dump, you know, a day's milking because it tasted nasty. Um, nothing against the pigs or the chickens, but I, you know, we always wanted to use the milk ourselves for making cheese and, and don't think you can make cheese from nasty milk. If you have nasty milk, it is going to make nasty cheese. Oh, absolutely. I definitely remember having some goatee batches of chevrolet. Yeah. Yeah, we, ooh, yeah. In the early years, we made so many mistakes. (laughs) And some of them did not taste good at all. So, yeah, and so we can tell you that, like, eating that kind of uh, bacteria in your cheese doesn't hurt you at all. It (laughs) just tastes really, ew, not good. So, this has been awesome. And um, if we think of any other cool topics I'll call you again (laughs) sounds good yeah no that's that's I think that yeah that detecting bacteria in milk is the limit of my research that I did that pertained to goats but if you think of any other topics besides homeschooling and bacteria detection I'll be there yeah exactly if you are listening and you missed the conversation with Catherine about homeschooling on the farm with goats that is in a previous episode which I will link in the show notes for you So thanks again for joining me, Catherine. Yes, thank you for having me. Bye for now. All right, bye for now. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash LoveGoatsPodcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.